Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 13. Last week, I wrapped up the condensed history of ancient Egypt, while also covering the Nile River. All of this to set the stage for the deeper dive into their long and complex history. If you missed that episode, you should go back and give it a listen. Which leaves me with two encompassing topics that I need to cover before beginning the detailed Egyptian history, specifically their writing and religion. This week, I'm going to cover their languages, specifically hieroglyphic, hieratic, and demotic. I'll cover their religion in the next episode. So let's get started. As you should know by now, the ancient Egyptians, specifically those in the time period of the Old Testament, relied on hieroglyphics for writing. What you are probably unaware of is what came before and after the symbol-based written language, and of course, the actual construction of the writing itself. The ancient Greeks, who, like I covered last week, controlled the region in the last couple of centuries BC, thought the Egyptian pictorial symbols carried a certain sophistication. Herodotus, the 5th century BC Greek historian, along with his contemporaries, thought that the Egyptian hieroglyphs may have been sacred, so they referred to them as holy writing, and that's where the term for them originates. In Greek, the word hiero translates to holy, and the word glypho translates to writing, hence the Western name. After learning that, you'll probably be less surprised that the Egyptians called them something else. In their language, they were referred to as Medu, Netjir, which translates to God's words. And to them this made sense, as they believed that their gods invented writing. Of course, this leaves open the possibility that the word combination chosen by the Greeks was simply a translation of the Egyptian word into their language. As a prelude to next week, when I'll cover the Egyptian religion, a bit about how the religion and their thoughts on the development of writing were intertwined. The ancient Egyptians believed that their god, Tote, created writing so that they could become wiser, and also to strengthen their memory. But, since they were polytheistic, and as I covered when talking through the religions of the Mesopotamians, their pantheon of gods didn't always see eye to eye. In Egypt, another god, this one known as Re, thought otherwise. He believed that if you gave mere mortals writing, aka hieroglyphs, it would cause them to rely more on written documentation than oral tradition. I guess he thought that was a bad thing. Re's logic went on to suppose that writing would then decrease people's memory and wisdom. Despite what Ray thought, Tote went ahead and gave writing to a select number of Egyptians, who would become known as scribes. In ancient Egypt, these scribes thus became very respected for their knowledge and skill in using this sacred gift from the gods. So much so that those that took the time to learn the many glyphs could move vertically in their society, a mobility that is seldom seen in history. Moving along. In Egypt, the priest would use hieroglyphs to record prayers, magical text, and thoughts related to the afterlife, 
as well as worshipping their gods. But in our modern concept of ancient Egypt, perhaps the most widely known use of hieroglyphs was in their funerary practices. In their tombs, many of the deceased had their biographies written, but they also had guides to getting to the afterworld written on the surfaces of tomb walls and actually on the inside of their coffins. Obviously, maybe. The ancient Egyptians believed that these texts helped guide the dead through the afterlife. But the use of hieroglyphics was not limited to their religion. Civil officials used them to write royal records, specifically those seen as having a long-term use. They were also used to record historical events and to document calculations, such as the depth of the Nile River on a specific day of the year, which, if you think it through, leaves many other areas that needed recording. I'll get to what written language was used for those documents in a minute. The construction of the written language was somewhat of a hybrid between a strict symbol and a phonetic alphabet. It was comprised essentially of three basic elements. The first is what is known as a logogram, which essentially means a symbol meant to represent a complete word. For example, their hieroglyph for the noun, king, was merely a seated person wearing a royal headdress. Simple enough. But then, it could also be a bit more abstract. For example, the hieroglyph depicted as a pair of legs could also represent a verb or a noun related to the word movement. When combined with other glyphs, the symbol could represent the verb to approach or the concept to give directions. Sometimes you will see the word ideogram used in the place of logogram. Next, there were phonograms, which are simply symbols that represent phonetic sounds. These are the most similar to how most modern Western languages are constructed. Phonograms represent the sounds of single consonants and a combination of consonants. Readers of the glyphs usually must use both phonograms and logograms to determine the significance of a word or phrase. And here's an unexpected tidbit. The Egyptians did not write vowels. And this presents a problem as it makes our current understanding of the language difficult, as we cannot know how exactly they pronounce hieroglyphic text. A general thought is that when speaking, they may have expressed vowel sounds to distinguish various words that, in writing, looked identical. But that's little more than speculation. Back to the construction of the language. Third, there were what are known as determinatives. These were symbols placed after other words to help clarify the meaning of the previous symbol. In our Western world, at least to me, these are perhaps the hardest to translate. The simplest way is to think of them as adjectives, but not exactly. By way of example, they had a symbol that simply meant people. After that symbol, they would place a dashed vertical line that meant multiple. Combine the two, and you have the phrase multiple people, or a great number of people, or something similar. Writing phonograms and determinatives in different orders and combinations allowed the Egyptians to develop thousands of combinations without having to create a single distinct glyph 
for each expressed thought, action, or concept. Combine these all together and take into consideration that the language was used for thousands of years and you end up with a huge number of symbols. How many? Well, from its first use through the Middle Kingdom, they had over 1,000 symbols. Then, as a part of a series of reforms during the Middle Kingdom, the number was reduced to around 750, which in metric is still 750. Now, you probably know that some modern Eastern languages use symbols too. In Japanese, their written language system is commonly called kanji and is thought to have over 50,000 symbols. And Japanese secondary school students are required to learn over 2,000 of these. The Chinese language is equally complex, with about 2,500 characters representing almost 98% of usage. Keeping that in mind, learning 750 characters seems less daunting, but certainly more complex than the 26 in English. And, just in case you run across it on Jeopardy or in Trivial Pursuit, some linguists consider the ampersand to be the 27th letter in English. And with that, back to the hieroglyphs. After the reforms of the Middle Kingdom, the number gradually increased, which is to be expected with new technology and an evolving culture. And in that culture, what led to it was specifically an increase in written religious text. Unlike most Western languages, hieroglyphs were written right to left, but they were also from top to bottom. There were no spaces, nor punctuation. The current thinking, backed up by archaeological evidence, is that Egyptian hieroglyphs may be the oldest form of writing. The oldest evidence of a form of Egyptian hieroglyphs are from around 3300 BC. More on that in a bit. Fast forward and the Egyptians used hieroglyphs for the next 3,500 years, and that places it during the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, all of the kings and prophets of the Old Testament, and even while Christ, as a child, was living in exile in Egypt. That's a phenomenal amount of history. More on the last usage of the glyphs in a bit. During their history, hieroglyphs were most widely used during about the 1700-year period when the Egyptians spoke and wrote in an Old Egyptian, which slowly evolved into a Middle Egyptian language. This was a time period between about 3000 and 1300 BC, so just past the presumed lifespan of Moses. And since I'm on the subject, the Egyptian language changed over several millennia, with the changes being divided into periods known as Old Egyptian, Middle Egyptian, and Late Egyptian. Before I walk through the development of the symbolic language, a disclaimer. The actual development is not thoroughly understood, but there are a few theories. And unlike some questions that researchers try to figure out, like what the heck is a duck-billed platypus, we do know one thing for certain. The language did develop somehow. We just haven't quite figured out what that how is. Perhaps the most accepted theory is that the language began as rock drawings, 
primarily focused on the logograms, so pictures to represent nouns. The civilization that developed these are thought to have been prehistoric hunting tribes who settled in what is now the Sahara Desert west of the Nile. Of course, and like I've covered several times, this area wasn't always so dry, and if they were hunters, then there was some sort of game they were hunting. The theory proposes that these primitive people developed the symbols to communicate visually. And it was probably the type of images you would expect. Animals, geography, other people. The really important stuff to them. Also, like I covered in the history of Mesopotamia, not only did they draw these symbols on their rocks, but also on pottery. And much of this pottery has been uncovered by archaeologists. In what is known as the Second Nakada period, which was from about 3500 to 3200 BC, such pottery was buried in their tombs. But, to be clear, this pottery doesn't show what we would think of as hieroglyphs, just simply simpler symbols. The first symbols we would consider to be actual hieroglyphs are found in the tombs that date to the third Nakada period, between about 3200 and 3000 BC. Some call this period Dynasty Zero. I covered why it's called Dynasty Zero two weeks ago, but simply, it is thought to have had a dynasty, but the names of the leaders of this dynasty remain largely unknown. Such is the problem with not writing your history down. Artifacts dated to around 3000 BC have writing that tends to memorialize royal achievements. These achievements are documented on ceremonial maces as well as funerary stone stele. It seems that these documented a ruler's achievements during their life. But there are also examples of the ruler's relationships with the various gods and goddesses. Then, dated to around 2500 BC, are the oldest known examples of Egyptian literature, known as the Pyramid Text. These are engraved on pyramids' interior walls. Then, dated to about 2000 BC, are what is known as Coffin Text. These are believed to be a set of magical and liturgical spells inscribed on coffins, hence the name. Circling back to the pre-dynasties, there was a significant archaeological find located upriver. This one, in particular, was uncovered in a cemetery in the Egyptian city of Abydus. In our modern world, this city is on the Nile in central Egypt. In the terms of the Nile itself, it is considered Upper Egypt. In this cemetery, a tomb of what appears to be a wealthy male, maybe a ruler, who was interred around 3100 BC has been uncovered. In the tomb were several artifacts including hundreds of clay jars and an ivory staff. On these were some of the earliest known writings. Now, to be clear, over the past 5,000 or so years, the tomb has been looted, probably many, many times. And not all of the valuable items were there when archaeologists finally arrived on the scene. But the looters didn't take everything. Apparently many of the items that they did take were labeled when they were initially placed in the tomb, when the deceased was interred. The looters left behind some of these labels. It is these labels, numbering about 150, 
that contains some of the earliest known hieroglyphs, lucky us. These symbols were carved on small rectangular pieces of wood and ivory, all with a hole in the corner for affixing to whatever object they were affixed to. These inscriptions at Abidas also show diverse kinds of information. There are numbers, some are thought to show the origin of the goods, and then there are labels that are believed to detail economic reports, probably merchant data, related to the entombed ruler. Other early, meaning still Dynasty Zero, tombs in the same area contain similar inscriptions on pottery, metal, mostly copper, and stone. On these, especially the pottery, are symbols that detail the ownership of their contents. These may have been necessary for taxation or other accounting data. As time wore on, the tombs tend to show that the symbols on the pottery became increasingly standardized. This has been theorized as showing an increased complexity of record-keeping and maybe even greater governmental control. The First Dynasty, which was between about 3000 and 2890 BC, developed a new writing surface, papyrus. Think of papyrus as a thick paper-like material that was sourced from the papyrus plant, of course. The plant is a wetland grass with really thick stems. Inside these stems is a sticky, fibrous, spongy tissue. To manufacture the paper, and I'll just call it that, even though it's not really paper. Anyway, workers would cut the stems into strips, then layer the strips on top of another to form sheets. The sheets could then be rolled up into scrolls. There were many more steps, but they're not really pertinent to this podcast. What is important is that the papyrus, especially when stored in an arid climate and left undisturbed in a tomb, lasts a really long time. The oldest uncovered papyrus that had writing on it, at least so far, dates to around 2560 BC and describes the final phases of construction of the Great Pyramid at Giza. And, if you were paying attention, you noted a qualifier in that statement. The oldest papyrus is actually from the First Dynasty and dates to around 3100 BC, but this papyrus was blank, or it's at least blank now. The ink may have faded, or it may have always been blank. Either way, it was found in the tomb of Himaka, who is thought to have been a high-ranking official in the administration of the first pharaoh. According to pottery seal inscriptions found in his tomb, he was the king of Lower Egypt's seal-bearer, which would make him similar to what we would call a chancellor. As for the papyrus in the tomb, it was merely strips that had not yet been formed into sheets, so compared to the later versions, pretty primitive. There were also other writing surfaces used by the ancient Egyptians. One such was a wood writing board that was covered with white plaster. These were used primarily through the end of the 18th dynasty, which places it around 1300 BC, which is also during the adventures of Moses. The plaster surface could be washed and then replastered to provide a reusable surface. Think of this as an ancient small chalkboard. Of course, the writing medium wasn't limited to clay, plaster, and papyrus. New Kingdom artifacts, so as recent as 1069 BC, 
had writing on bone, metal, and leather. Surviving examples on bone and metal aren't terribly surprising, but leather, that's a bit different. And whatever leather is found is not usually in good condition, especially when compared to the papyrus of the same era. So it's really unknowable how much leather was used as a medium. Of course, writing has been found on other items, such as jewelry, especially pieces cast in gold and silver, but also precious stones and rare wood. Sometimes the stones and wood were used as inlays for furniture and in walls. In the latter part of the Old Kingdom, around 2200 BC, the Egyptians followed the example of the Mesopotamians and used clay tablets. But one thing to take into consideration is that these have been found near the Dakla Oasis. This oasis is in the southwestern Egyptian desert, or at least it's desert today. But even then, in that era, there were no papyrus plants there. So, necessity was, even then, the mother of invention, or at least the mother of imitation. The language found on these tablets is distinct from the hieroglyphs of the same era but found in the Nile region. This language is called hieratic and continued to be used alongside hieroglyphs for many kingdoms. As a quick aside, hieratic is generally viewed as a more efficient written language of the time as it was quicker for scribes to produce. It was a sort of abbreviated longhand intended to be found on documents while hieroglyphics tended to be on monuments. The characters of the hieratic script were initially based on the hieroglyphic symbols, but over time, they were simplified and ended up not resembling their hieroglyphic origins. Overall, hieratic was used for most of the writing done with reed pens and ink on papyrus. Through most of the long history of its use, Hieratic was principally used for administrative documents, accounts, legal texts, and letters, but it could also be found in mathematical, medical, literary, and religious texts. After the development of the Demotic language, which I'll get to in a minute, Hieratic was generally limited to religious texts. Finally, Hieratic was the language of the masses, well, the literate masses. It was the writing system first taught to students, with the knowledge of hieroglyphs being limited to a much smaller subset of students and scholars, primarily royalty, priests, and civil officials. Why? Well, hieroglyphs were difficult to learn and time-consuming to create. Think of it as the ancient equivalent to the modern use of calligraphy, except calligraphy is still English. But it is much easier for the masses to type and print. The difficulty in learning the proper use of hieroglyphs can be seen in some archaeological finds, as it is frequently possible to detect errors in hieroglyphic text that came about due to possible misunderstanding of an original hieratic text. As BC approached AD, and in the history of Egypt, this would place it during the Ptolemaic dynasty, so between 305 and 30 BC the Egyptians went about creating many new hieroglyphic characters. It seems that their priests desired to be more mysterious in their records. When a region is occupied by an outside power, such behavior is typical. Overall, it appears that they created glyphs to serve as a code 
and thereby prevented outsiders from understanding the language. Then, in 30 BC, came the Romans, and with that, the use of hieroglyphs declined tremendously. The big takeaway is that during the Greek, then Roman rule, there were three driving forces against hieroglyphs. Obviously, the influence of Greek and Roman culture, but also, later, a conversion of a large part of the population to Christianity. The Christian influence led to the creation and rise of the Coptic alphabet, but that's a subject for a future episode, way in the future. The last known hieroglyphic inscription was written in 394 AD. Before wrapping up, I need to circle back to the 7th century BC to cover one more derivative of the Egyptian language. A language known as Demotic came on the scene at this time. This language was a more condensed script than hieratic and lacked any sort of pictorial qualities. Beginning at this point, hieroglyphs continued to be used in carved inscriptions on buildings, jewelry, and furniture, but hieratic was used for religious writings and demotic for business and literary text. In an economic sense, it seems that this was a great time to be a triliterate scribe. In the language's general use, meaning except for religious and funerary inscriptions, Demotic slowly supplanted Hieratic. Remember this when I get to the Rosetta Stone, which will be the first thing covered next week. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, please go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. I've gotten a few more over the past week and I really, really appreciate it. And so do those people who are searching for a podcast on the subject because it helps them to find it. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so it's easier to find later. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss any. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.